Welcome to Why Though. We're your hosts, Tiffany Bloom and Ashley Abercrombie. We land somewhere in between Mother Teresa and Biggie Smalls, and we're just wondering, why though? We all have questions, from our existential crisis curiosities to our, hey girl, why your eyebrows look so good though? And we want to tackle all of those questions with you. And welcome back to Why Though. We are so pumped you are here. You know what? 2021. You guys, we can't. We can't do this. We can't live like this. Nobody needs this kind of stress. We're going to have to get one of those meditation apps. This Mm -hmm. is too stinking much. And I just want to say, I wanted to say something more than stinking, but we have a clean rating on Apple Podcasts, (laughs) and we're going to keep it that way. And today, Abercrombie, we have a treat for the people, don't we? We do have a treat for the people. One of my dearest friends. Tell us, Tiffany. Oh, I'm so excited. We have with us Kamala Avila Salmon, who is the head of inclusive content at Lionsgate. Lionsgate as in the folks who make the movies, you guys. Uh Lionsgate. She was in executive leadership at Facebook Watch for the Red Table Talk, which we're going to hear all about that. This woman has a Harvard MBA. She is just a marketing machine and advertising Mm -hmm. tech. She is creating content. She is helping shape culture. That is what you're doing, Kamala. You are shaping culture for for the better. And it is truly an honor. Uh, you know, you have been a friend with Abercrombie for a long time, Kamala, and I am so honored to consider you a friend. Welcome to Why Though. Say hello to the people. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. It is my honor, actually, to be here with both of you because I am a longtime charter fan club member of one <laughs> Ashley Abercrombie. And um, I've heard really great things about you, Tiffany, and from you on your show. So it is amazing to be here with you two incredible powerhouse women. Oh, man, we are in the presence of greatness. So we are Uh so excited to hear. Tell us where you live. Tell us what your days look like. I can imagine your job is pretty interesting amid all things Corona, but you still do in the dang thing. Listen, I I said to someone um, yesterday that this feels like March 770th of 2020 (laughs) or December 57th of 2020. So what my days and what my life is like right now is probably some version of something not too disconnected from you guys, which is just like trying to live in quarantine with a child and a husband at home. And uh, but yeah, I started my new job at Lionsgate um, about two months ago, and it's been incredible. Like, it's so interesting. It's exactly, you know, when you step into something that just feels like exactly like this is what I'm here for. Wow. Like like this wow. is like actually like what I'm on earth to do, which is oh, just bizarre that. because I moved to Los Angeles 10 years ago and I, I feel like I'm finally now in the job that I moved here for that mm. I didn't know exactly what it would be and it honestly didn't exist. So hmm. wow, I feel it didn't like even I'm exist. in a very moment. Yeah, I'm in a real moment right now. Hmm. I love that. Just the faithfulness. That's a long obedience in the same direction to know that there was a need and to be the person to meet that need. That's so powerful. And before you were at Lionsgate in these last eight weeks, you were where? I was at Facebook. So, you know, my journey has been one of those that I think 
definitely makes a lot more sense and seems a lot smarter in reverse than mm. maybe in forward. But, you know, my my sort of path and, and, and sort of the driving beat for me has always been to continue to move in spaces where I feel like I can make a difference for how, you know, people who are marginalized, people who are often off screen, people who are often not seen and not heard actually can be seen. And I've done that through marketing in a number of different spaces, starting in the music industry, moving over to TV and film and streaming and tech. And now I feel like I'm sort of back in, you know, the place that initially probably inspired me the most which is, you know, as a kid that grew up watching a lot of TV and a lot of movies and craved seeing myself, wow. um, you know, this is sort of, you know, what I'm now able to do is have the types of conversations that hopefully help people get seen because to be seen as life-giving and to be erased is, is you know, so destructive. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, Kamala, one of the things that I have always loved about you and the way we met you guys, just so you know, is that, you know, I was part of the same faith community as Kamala and I was in leadership as a pastor on a church staff. And she basically sent me an email um, after a brutal police killing. And she was Mm -hmm. like, hey, why is the church not talking about this? Why aren't we doing Mm -hmm. more around the issue of race? Can we have a dialogue about that? And she wrote this beautiful email, was super kind, but she was very direct. And I responded back with an email and that's how we became like super fans of one another as we started to talk in dialogue and she you were right about so many things that we needed to change and things that we needed to address and talk about that we weren't currently at the time and you were like a chiropractor in my life like she literally just tweaked my back so that I knew (laughs) when to speak up how to speak up I started hosting events in my home to talk about the issue of race in diverse settings and so one of the things I've really admired about you Kamala is you know I remember when you were having phone calls with people who were um, not people of color, trying to educate Mm -hmm. them and giving them safe places to ask really hard questions about diversity and what would it look like and how do we give voice to people? How do we create safe spaces? And it was so admirable to me because this is your deep abiding passion. And at the same time, you have a real desire to build bridges. You don't pull any punches, like let's not get it twisted. But at the same time, you have a real desire to, to build bridges and to teach and educate people. And so it's no surprise that this is your work <laughs> in so many different sectors of society that you're able to bring people through, but not just allow voices to be highlighted, but also bring understanding to people who didn't have it before. And I really love and admire that about your work. Thank you so much. I mean, you know, it. I love that you mentioned how you and I first met because I do think that it is so kind of one emblematic of who I am, mm, which is yes. a person that like I cannot <laughs> keep my mouth shut. You know, if I see something that needs to be talked about, like I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think it's so also emblematic of the type of people that um, I have in my life. And the type of people that stick around, um, people like yourself. And and I I consider myself so blessed to have a group of friends of so many different backgrounds and ethnicities and genders and, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds Mm -hmm. and regions and um, sexual orientations. And I think the reason why I'm able to have this diverse group is that at the end of the day, I know that I can be 100 percent myself Mm. and I can talk about what's bothering me and I have people in my life that endeavor to be world changers not Mm -hmm. just people that are here and then are not and so you know when I see something that needs to be changed and addressed I think that I'm both you know stubborn and optimistic enough to be like 
it can change mm-hmm. and and but it won't change if we don't start talking about it right and you know i feel like i've been blessed to be able to have a lot of hard conversations with people that have resulted in deeper relationships as opposed to in fractured relationships mm-hmm. which is very I difficult love that. i love that i love the stubborn optimism so i have right. a quick question can we go back to the beginning when did you realize i see myself in in the with the tastemakers you know people who are contributing entertainment and people who are speaking to um, national issues where did that start was it middle school was it high school was it um, I know you mentioned you watched a lot of tv as a kid but when did you realize I can take this somewhere yeah that's a great question honestly I think that for me it started when I was very young, probably four or five. So mm. I, I was born in Jamaica. My parents moved to New York when I was about four. And um, my parents will tell you that I started telling people that I was going to go to Harvard when I was around that age. And they were like, I have no idea where you heard this, but <laughs> that was the thing that you said you were going to do. And I would tell people that like I was going to be the first ever singing entertainment lawyer. So, you know... I'm doing something slightly <laughs> different now. Yeah, you I are. Think that, <laughs> but I think that where that was coming from is that like, you know, though my parents were both super academic and like very hard, you know, very, um, you know, really focused on academics and professional endeavors and super successful. My dad is a big um, music lover and I just grew up sort of sitting with him and listening to hours and hours and hours of music. Mm. And then I fell in love with something like television. And I remember spending so much time watching things like the Cosby show and a different world. And Mm. for me, I think it was, those were the moments when I realized that like, the most effective and compelling messages that are being communicated in our society are, are happening in are happening in popular media. You know, people are trying so many different avenues to persuade people, mm-hmm. whether that is politics or academics or lectures or books or and all of those things have their place. But nothing moves you the same way that a song that gets inside you does, the right. same way that a movie that makes you feel either totally seen or shows you someone that you've never seen. Mm. Yeah. Like nothing gets under your skin like that. And I sort of decided very early that that's what I wanted to do. And I think my path to doing this version of it has been, you know, something that has unfolded slowly and over time, but it was always driven by the same passion to either be a storyteller or a vehicle myself. Mm. So when I was, you know, growing up, I sang all throughout my childhood and through college. And I no way. Started my own little record label for a while and like did a little independent demo. This was a whole part of my life. Wow. Before, before I ever came to L.A., Ash, before you knew me. Oh, so my God. Singing was my first passion. Um, and then I started like, you know, thinking about story ideas for shows. And then I sort of fell into marketing. And marketing for a while was really scratching that itch for me because it was pairing me with deeply creative, inspirational people that had a creative vision. And I, as the marketer, could partner with them to make sure that that vision got seen. So I had the amazing honor of working with people like Janelle Monet at the beginning of her career um, and, and so many others and just seeing sort of what those types of voices can do just sort of 
you know, and, and recognizing how important it was to make sure that those voices were heard. I think that was the beginning of it. That was the kernel of it. And then over time, it just became a thing where, you know, I knew how I felt, you know, every year when I didn't see myself on TV or in the award shows. And right. I also knew that, like, we would forever be a fad until we actually focus just as much on diversifying the people in the decision-making room as we're focusing on changing the people in front of the camera mm. because the people in front of the camera are a reflection of the priorities of the people in the decision-making room. Phew! So I was like, well, I, I, well, I need that. to be an exec. That's what, that's what I need to do. And so getting to this point is so incredibly gratifying, but I will say that it has been, I've painstakingly earned every single stripe along the way. Yeah. And Sometimes the opportunity that you're ready for doesn't exist yet. And you're just to your point, you've remained faithful in doing the work wherever you have a chance to do it and seeing beyond what you're assigned until finally, like the things meet meet up for a while. And you're like, wow, I, I read the, you know, the job description of what Lionsgate was looking for. And I was like, this is everything that I have done. To mm. this point. How is this possible? This is like tailor made for me. So I don't know who else applied, but I felt pretty strongly that like this is what was next in the universe for me. Mm. So I'm just super grateful that it actually panned out. I love that. I love that. I love that you took what was in your hand and what was in your sphere of influence at the time. Mm -hmm. And just that ethos and that grounding question of can I make change here? Can I make change for the better in this place? If not, this isn't the place for me. I think so often mm -hmm. we spin yeah. our wheels in places that aren't really welcoming to us, but we want it right. to fit. We want that round hole, square peg, you know, or or vice versa. Mm -hmm. You get my point. But we mm -hmm. were like, yeah. no, I'm going to make this work. And we end up bleeding to death in a place that is really a waste of our time and our season and yeah. takes mm -hmm. so much out of us and we outstay our welcome when we yeah. should have moved on and when we should have dreamed bigger. And sometimes I think we stay because we're afraid of dreaming bigger. We're afraid of what that could cost us. Or maybe we don't think we're cut out for the job yet. We don't think we have it in us, the gas in the tank. And I think I, I love what I'm hearing is you're like, I'm going to believe in me more than anyone else. I'm going to believe yeah. that what I have is good and the change I can make is good well before someone else thinks that of me. I think that's just, that's such a word. I think especially for women, even right now as COVID has just, hit women in such a unique way um yeah. as they've lost jobs they their priorities have radically shifted in ways that they did not ask for and mm -hmm. uh i think we can feel so benched so easily whether it's interior or exterior circumstances so just that the resolve the resolve yeah. you had um it's just it's just beautiful to hear mm -hmm. truly truly Ye beautiful Mm -hmm. You have to be like your first and your final cosign. Right. Like, that's that's what it is because yep. you know waiting for other people to validate you first is just an exercise in you know in luck at best and in frustration at worst. Right. Because you are the best judge of what you are capable of. And it doesn't mean like you don't seek feedback, that you don't seek additional confirmation, that you don't push yourself to get better and better. But nobody knows how the sum of experiences that you've had, both those on your resume and those off of your resume, mm -hmm. have led you to the qualifications that you now possess. So, 
you know, you have to be the one that is the best at telling your story. You have to be the one that is the most honest about, right. you know, what your ceiling is and, and what your um, what your limitations are. And then really leaning into and believing in those strengths and, and being your number one, you know, your number one fan because the world is fickle. <laughs> right. Mm. And I think that that's what's so admirable about your admirable about your entire journey is this sort of holistic perspective of advocacy, even though you're not using that word. Mm -hmm. But you really you advocate for yourself, you know, your value. And I'm sure that you're a human being, obviously. So you have fears and you have insecurities like everybody else. But I love what you said to just be honest about your ceiling, (laughs) like honest about what you can and what you can't do and be the best at telling your story. But you have advocacy for yourself. You have advocacy for the people that you're perpetuating their message and you know, putting their voice out there, but then you have this beautiful advocacy space for behind the scenes as well. So I hear such a picture of wholeness and health in the work that you do. And that's really powerful. How how do you cultivate that? Because I feel like sometimes, you know, we can get our focus set on one area or one arena. And I feel like you, you tend to look at the you know, this is not the right language, but the whole assembly line, <laughs> the whole factory mm-hmm. line, you know, like, yeah, you look from beginning to end to see, okay, how is this not equitable for everyone? And what can I do to implement new solutions or to innovatively think about things like where does that come from? That's a very unusual strength. Yeah, wow. Thank you. I, I mean, I think part of it is that growing up, my parents always had um, very honest conversations both with me and with each other about, you know, the role that race was playing in the way that their lives were unfolding in the U.S. My parents mm-hmm. came from a predominantly black country, and I think it was um, such a rude awakening when they arrived here to see just how much, you know, race impacted how they moved through the world and how their careers unfolded. And I think that what that implanted in me was not only like, you know, just... Um, a really deep sense of both justice and radar for injustice. I think it also gave me a sense that um, nothing in this world is the way it is on accident. And there's a system operating behind almost everything. And so, you know, while I, you know, as an example, it would be like, you know, it was frustrating. My dad would share that, like, you know, he would teach all of these students um, because he's a professor. He's like, I will teach these students for three months. And when I'm in that classroom, they know that I'm Professor Salmon and like I am, you know, this person to them. But I would see them on the street in the village and they would like walk right by me as if like they'd never met me. Why, why does this happen? And, you know, I said part of it is that I think that for many of your students, like for your non-black students, your classroom may be the only place in which they actually know a black face, that they mm-hmm. know a black person, right? And while there are individual pieces of it, like these people need to be more aware of what's going on around them. They need to start asking deeper questions. They need to diversify their friend circle. There's also a system operating around it of like, why is it? that it seems normal for them that they don't know any other um, black people or that they don't have any other black friends or that they don't have black people in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their whatever it is. And so I just think it just really implanted in me this inquisitive and and um, sort of, um, I guess, assertive side, if you will, mm-hmm. where I'm just constantly um, looking at spaces and thinking about, well, why is it this way? And I think that curiosity um, matched with what I talked about before which is like a stubborn optimism that like if you call it out in the right way and provide the 
the path to solution, it can change, has just been sort of how I've moved through spaces. And, you know, even in places where, you know, you're, you're not all, you're not always going to be able to move the ball 100% down the field, right? Like, you know, systems right. are real. Yeah. Yep. But in every single space that I've been at, I can feel pretty confident that I left it better than it was when I arrived. And, you know, that's all that I can do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think one of the things that I'm just still like, oh, my goodness, you know, we we encourage others to diversify the voices that they listen to and who are they being mentored by and what sources, you know, are they listening to or what does their friendship group look like? And knowing that we have to systemically architect that to be more integrated and to be more inclusive. And it, it, there's, an, there's an aspect of personal responsibility, just as you said. And then there's an act of corporate responsibility. And you're part of that solution. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think all of us, to a degree, have to think, how am I encouraging others? Not just myself, but how am I creating space for others to hear voices that they wouldn't before? And I think yep. more than ever, it is imperative that we are willing to learn from one another and recognize another's identity and lived experience. Because look mm-hmm. what happened last week like if we cannot see each other as human beings and worthy in the image of god then this is this is not gonna work you know like this is this is gonna get worse um and 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 i'm not negating any gains made in america but it just is um it's disheartening and it also is just that reminder of personal responsibility like no one gets a free pass to say oh but i just don't know about this issue i think for me you know i have so many friends like oh but i just don't understand well get a book like there's great look go look at the new york times sellers all 10 of them are are on this issue so please google exactly are are, are you familiar with with, with this product we call google (laughs) the google machine Right. It, it, it's so funny because, um, you know, I, I was um, recording my own podcast yesterday with, um, you know, so, uh, some guests talking about what girl, happened give a little Capitol. plug, give you a little plug. Tell the people Listen, what your podcast name is. So I'm I've started a podcast called From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. And what we tackle on this podcast is really my reflection on seeing how so many people over the summer um, got quote unquote woke. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. they saw the issue of systemic racism, right? They didn't do anything, right? They just saw it, right? Maybe for some of them, they felt things, right? They felt, mm. you know, a lot of emotions, right? A l- sadness and regret and sorrow, but still, they didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And to me, at the end of the day, you know, what we do is what's going to make a difference, not what we feel. And so I, you know, I created this journey to help people think about what are the steps to go from just being quote unquote woke, meaning aware of the, you know, the, the reality of systemic racism to actually moving through all of the steps, going all the way through sympathy and empathy and reflection and allyship and finally anti-racism. Because I think the other thing that was happening is that people were just throwing these words around and they started to have no meaning. I'm an ally. Okay, well, what have you done for this community? Right. I, I, I posted a black square. Right. I'm an anti-racist. Right. It's like, well, what are you doing to dismantle white supremacy and systemic racism? Mm -hmm. I just don't like racism. That's not the same thing. Right. And and so I think that, um, you know, to your point about, you know, not wanting to negate the progress that we've made, I think that if anything, we are much more in danger of 
being too overly impressed with the progress that we've made, then we mm. are in danger of underappreciating it. Right. Underappreciating it That's is a not a threat that I've seen. Yeah. What I see yeah. is people resting on their laurels and being like, see, but you guys are not enslaved anymore. We shouldn't have been in the first place. That's Correct. That's my barometer yeah. for progress. Right. Yeah. My barometer is am I 100 percent on equal standing with any other white citizen in this country? And I think that I saw a great um, there was a great um, quote that I saw once where, you know, a really amazing um, leader on anti-racism and equity basically said to a room full of white people, um, stand up if you'd like to trade places with a black person mm -hmm. in this country. And the fact that no one stood up mm -hmm. means that everybody knows what's happening, but they just choose to not think about it. Yeah. And this in this day and age, in the year 2021, we can't afford to have anybody having, you know, good feelings on the sidelines, but not actually getting in the fight because yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. And I don't want my son, Langston, to have to record a version of my podcast 25 years from now, begging mm. his peers to like care about racism. Mm. That's such a sobering thought. I, um, I love Dr. Janet Helms. Uh, she created something called the white identity model to kind of help um, Caucasian people understand where are they on the spectrum with race. And I had just yeah. seen it when everything played out last summer. And mm -hmm. so it was so wild to watch over the last year people doing this exact thing. But basically, mm -hmm. she talks about contact is the first stage. I'm not going to get into all the stages, but contact's the first stage. And basically, in that yeah. stage, people are very often saying, I just don't see color. And in fact, they think if you talk about race, then you are actually contributing to racism. Because why would you stir right. that up? Why would you make people angry? Why, you know, all those things. Right. And then there's typically an event or an experience or some type of knowledge that an individual encounters that moves them into disintegration. So at that stage, they're thinking about, you know, okay, maybe I do have privilege and what should I do about that? And and most often in this stage, it's associated with feelings, which is what you talked about earlier. Like you can't make a difference yeah. with feelings, you have to do something. But the feelings are typically shame and guilt. And if you don't do something mm -hmm. with the shame and, shame and guilt, if you're not able to channel that effectively into something, then what happens is you go into reintegration. And what they yep. discovered at this stage of reintegration, obviously, Kamala, you probably know this whole line <laughs> but they've discovered that what happens at this stage is people actually become even angrier than they were when they were in the contact stage and they begin mm -hmm. to blame the victim they begin to blame mm -hmm. other people and they mm -hmm. just kind of say oh well I have privilege it's not my fault that I have privilege and it doesn't really mm -hmm. matter anyway and so if they don't if do anything at that stop stage playing the race card we yes. would all be so much better off yes exactly like, is, is that the problem yes and if yeah. they don't progress past reintegration then they never really adopt yeah. an opportunity for a pathway to being an ally or a pathway to being someone who says, you know, I can be autonomous from the beliefs that I grew up with. And I can yeah. be autonomous from the camp that I come from because I care about people's lives. And so I thought Absolutely. it was just a really beautiful perspective because what I've seen is we're just all, you know, a lot of white America and particularly in the church, frankly, we're stuck kind of between disintegration and reintegration instead of moving right. into a place of independence. And so I, I appreciate that you've created I'm sorry that you have to do this work, you know, to, and you too, <laughs> Tiffany, because you shouldn't have to create pathways for us. But what I will say is I'm very grateful that you extend yourself so that people can learn because those who do learn, you know, as Maya Angelou says, once, once you know better, do better. And once, yeah. once many people know better, they really will do better. And I think most folks have a genuine desire to do better. And so I appreciate this work. 
Yeah, and I love that you brought up that particular, sorry, I was just going to say, I love that you brought up that Maya quote because I've heard people refer to it, but not always quote it the right way. Yes. And, and, and it doesn't say when you know better, you will do better. It's not like a natural outcome of mm-hmm. knowing better. Mm-hmm. You know, once you know better, you actually have to commit to doing better. You now have a responsibility yes. to doing better, but it's not just going to happen magically because now you know things or because you watch the George Floyd video. Right. You're good. That's right. exactly right. Yeah. I just want to echo that. I was so well said. Um, just this necessity for humility. Uh, talking about... Yeah. M- when you, especially when you described reintegration, I'm like, the only way forward is to admit you've got it wrong and to admit your mm-hmm. worldview is flawed and needs to die yeah. so you can have a resurrection of something new and better. Yeah. Like, it must yeah. happen. There is no other way for wholeness to take place yeah. unless we're willing to crucify mm-hmm. our our pride in this. There's so much mm-hmm. pride in racism. There's such an incredible yes. amount of pride. And so even thinking, um, Kamal, the way you described that... Uh, that instructor saying, you know, stand up if you'd like to switch lives with someone who's black. And just even hearing that, like, wow, the pride, like I am better. I don't want what they have. I do not want that. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for my family. So I think, um, Mm -hmm. it's such a call for humility. And, um, you know, we see a lot of flags waving for unity this week, but I'd say first Mm -hmm. humility. I'd say yeah, first humility insane. and repentance, yes. um, and then we can we can get to unity. But that's not that don't come just quite yet, y'all. Correct. It's it's so frustrating because I think that exactly what you laid out is is what should be, you know, the the, the path to reconciliation has to be paved with humility and mm-hmm. like an actual apology. Yes. Right. And 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 I think that a lot of what we're seeing right now is just like people just like one eightying on mm-hmm. everything they've been saying for the last four years and longer. Yeah. And, and now it's just supposed to be, we're all good now. Now we all agree. Enough is enough. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, enough was enough when we were trying to ban Muslims from our country for right. being Muslim. Enough was enough when we were saying that Mexicans were drug dealers and rapists. And, you know, it was enough when he was locking kids in cages. It, yeah. it has been enough. And I think if you now have your eyes opened, there should be some humility to recognize I've been on the wrong side for a long time. He didn't actually just cross some line. Mm -hmm. It had always been there. Correct. I really love that. And you both have been talking about Jane Elliott um, and she's an, she's an OG, you know, she's the OG brown, blue eyed um, experiment. But one of the things when speaking about humility and um, I think what's interesting is when she asked people, you know, would you trade lives with a black person? And in that room, nobody trades. But it's interesting because there's no humility to say not only would I not want that, but also I don't want that for you. And that's yes. what frustrates me. It's because like, that's you know, the thing. Yeah. yeah, like if we are made in the image of God and we believe other people are image and made in the image of God, then we have skin in this game. And yeah. so it doesn't have to look like everybody else. I mean, each of us have our own lives to live. We have our own unique context for, through which we see things. We have our own spheres yeah. of influence. But at the same time, it's like if I see somebody's life that I don't mm-hmm. want 
why don't I want it? And what am I going to do about it? Because if I don't think I I should live that way, why should anybody else have to live that way? (laughs) Whether you're talking about homelessness or foster care or, you know, there's a million things that people have a a deep abiding burden for. But if we Mm -hmm. are made in the image of God, then we have we have skin in this game. And so I think that we don't get to opt out because neighborliness is a commandment. (laughs) It is actually something the Lord asked us to do. You know, when they created the Ten Commandments, it was for covenant community. God was teaching us how to live together, how to love each other, how not to hurt each other. And if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you love him, then you will easily, more easily love your neighbor. Even, yeah. you know, as as much as loving your enemy, you know, God, God is not, he's not joking around about love. <laughs> he's yeah. so strong and he's so extreme, you know, and we can't be so extreme in our pride or in our doubling down on something that we don't like calling hatred, but that's really what it is. And we double down mm-hmm. on that. It's not us yeah. being made in the image of God. We're not acting like God, you know, and that's not okay. And listeners, we know we have people on both sides of the aisle. So this is this is an in- invitation for everyone to practice humility. This isn't pointing yes. fingers, hey, this this group didn't practice humility and now they need to, or no, you didn't practice humility and that was... Pra-. No, we're inviting yes. all of us, all yes. God's children to, to reach forth with open hands and an open heart and walk in humility and, and truly the fruit of the Spirit um, to move forward. So Kamala, any last words for our listeners? Wow. Um, last words are always the hardest question of any interview ever because you're like, <laughs> shoot, what did I say? What should I have said? Did I say all the things? <laughs> I, I, I think the thing that I would say is that, um, I, I mean, I love what you said, Tiffany, about humility is an equal opportunity endeavor and every single one of us needs to be invested in that. I would say um, similarly, advancing racial justice is an equal opportunity in- endeavor. Amen. You know, Amen. I am doing what I can to advance it. And, and my portion and, and my mission is very much to s- try to speak truth in as many places as possible for the purpose of calling people in to a different way of being in this world. But, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, problem of racism you know this that cannot be laid at the feet of people of color to solve right so what Mm -hmm. i would say is that everybody has got to get into this fight and be seriously invested and it needs to be okay if not even outright encouraged that people of color should be able to do less work in this yeah we really need Um, For people with privilege, we need white people to really step up and say, you know what, this is my problem too. And also, I have a lot to do and a lot invested in creating this problem. And I'm going to work alongside people of color who are trying to dismantle it. And I'm going to work in spaces where there are only white people and do what I can there too. Because it doesn't serve me you know, for you to tell me all of the things that you think about, um, you know, racism and anti-racism and how you're really an advocate and an ally, never be the one to call yourself an ally. If you're a great ally, we will let you know. (laughs) Totally. Do the work. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And amen to that. (laughs) Oh, that was beautiful. So well said. What a, what a crescendo to this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. We are going to have the link to her podcast in the show notes and her socials. Go follow her, go give her some why the love. Thanks girl for joining us. And to all of you listeners, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.
Hey listeners, remember to subscribe and comment. It helps others to find the show. To learn more about Tiffany's writing, speaking, or books, visit tiffanybloom.com. To learn more about Ashley's writing, speaking, or books, visit ashabercrombie.org. See you next week.